The Game Podcast is probably sponsored by StarCityGames.com, and this weekend, the SCG Tour goes to Dallas for a modern open. Join Matthias Hunt and Ryan Overturf as they bring you all the exciting action on the SCG Tour at twitch.tv slash scgtour. Welcome to the 64th episode of the Game Podcast. I'm the host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian Gottlieb. No fancy name today. You're slacking. Yeah, I, I just feel like, you know, everything runs its course at some point. And I was trying to come up with a name and I really felt like I was digging. So unless there's massive outrage and all of the game fanatics out there protest and ask me to bring back the clever name every week, I think I'm, I'm ready to let that ride off into the sunset. The time has come. No nut collector or squirrel pun. Like I heard that you signed some squirrel tokens. So you're kind of a big deal. I did. I signed my first squirrel token this weekend. It was awesome. Uh, someone who soundly trounced me actually out of day two contention. He gave me my third loss in the SCG Open. Really nice guy, a fan of the podcast, uh, asked me to sign his squirrel token. And I was more than happy to do so. Rad. Yeah. Yeah. It was a fun tournament all, all throughout. There's a lot of game podcast fans that I met this weekend and a few people who were kind of anticipating me to lead with turbo depths and they were surprised when I led with turn one Delver. So I called them out for not being Patreons because obviously I shared my final deck list with (laughs) Patreons on the podcast. They knew I was playing Delver, but if you were just a casual listener, you would have thought I would have been on a uh, turbo depths deck, but that was not the case. I played Grixis Delver. Deck's great, by the way. It certainly uh, is probably the best deck in Legacy and Points very heavily in favor of a ban for Deathrite Shaman. Card's just bonkers and, you know, not really good for the game of Magic, I think. So I think the important talking point is that not only is it just a very good card, but it also is very limiting in what the decks in Legacy are doing, right? It's like, well, if you're a green or black deck, you are probably, you're probably supposed to have Deathrite Shaman in your deck. And then from there, you just go down like, these very narrow paths where it's like, well, this card wants me to like interact with my opponent. So I become like more of a mid range deck by default. And then it just ends up being like this soup of interactive cards, you know, and like the decks don't really have identities anymore. It's just like, well, death, right. Wants me to play like just generically good cards to make the games go long and have powerful top decks and stuff like that. So. Right. It really homogenizes the format. And and I think beyond that, this isn't something that, I worry about too much when it comes to legacy, because I think legacy in some ways is supposed to reflect the entirety of magic history. And throughout magic history, color identities have kind of been this like wild West West ish type thing where they, they haven't always been as defined as they are now. But the fact that a Grixis deck has access to a card like death, right? Shaman to accelerate their mana. I'll always find that problematic. I, I think identity color identities are a big part of what makes magic very successful and Deathrite Shaman just throws them completely out the window. Uh, it does everything for a lot of decks that normally wouldn't have access to such an effect. So uh, I'm ready to see the card go. But if it doesn't go anytime soon, I can say uh, with a high level of confidence that you should almost certainly be playing probably Grixis Delver for your your next Legacy tournament. But certainly some form of Deathrite Delver deck is the best deck in the format. Or something that smashes it. You know, if there ends up being like, uh, some turbo blood moon deck or, you know, something along those lines, right? Where it's just like uh, Delver or Blue Deathrite can never beat this sort of strategy. Then yeah. I, I could totally get behind that. 
Yeah, there, there definitely comes a point where targeting the deck will be successful. And if you looked at kind of the metagame percentages from the SCG Open, I think had you made day two, you would have been very successful targeting Delver. And it, it was a huge portion of the day two field. But day one was still pretty all over the place. There were a lot of archetypes being played. You know, my, my brother attended the tournament with me and the list of decks he played against was so preposterous. He played like Mardu Bomberman, uh, Battle of Wits. <laughs> In fact... <laughs> Mono black reanimator depths like hybrid, just all kinds of nonsense throughout the entire day. Yo, give me the give me that depths reanimator hybrid list. I want it that. It looked really sweet. I, I wish I had the list. So if by any chance the person who played against my brother Justin Gottlieb at the SCG Open is a fan of this podcast and is, and is listening, I would love to know more about your uh, depths reanimator deck. It looked really cool. I've I've seen some a uh, couple pop like one or two popped up on Magic Online. Maybe I can actually find them on Goldfish, but. Uh, there was also one that I saw at one of the Haruya Legacy tournaments that I, I don't remember if this was the Depths spliced one, but there was one that also had like a bunch of Grave Titans and then sideboarded like Grim Monolith and Lake of the Dead just to like hard cast them. Whoa, that's really cool. And I'm just that's like, really this cool. is badass. This is so sweet. Yeah, his deck looked awesome. Uh, you know, having access to the depths combo in post-board games where you're being targeted with Graveyard Hate. Although I will say I think Graveyard Hate's at kind of a low point in Legacy right now to the to the point where I was considering dusting off my dredging friends, possibly. Um, I just don't think that deck's very good. Dredge has been doing pretty well on Magic Online. Again, it's like hard to tell with like the decklist dump or whatever, but like for the most part, you know, there's a 5-0 that I see almost every time. But yeah, Dredge itself, like I own all the cards for Dredge. Like it is, it is one of my favorite legacy decks. I did really well in the opens whenever I played it. And I don't know. It's just, it's one of those things where like all everyone else's cards have gotten better and like their decks have gotten refined and your deck has basically gotten not a whole lot. So it's tough. Yeah, exactly right. The archetype has been kind of static. Um, you know, the evolution, the biggest evolution the deck has seen over the past few years has been Manalus Dredge, which is not something I have any interest in. I, I think like I get the idea behind Manalus Dredge, like you believe graveyards aren't targeted, so why not just push it as hard as possible? But to me, actual Dredge has always felt like a better deck, and I've never actually gone down the rabbit hole of Manalus Dredge. But I would love to see some more innovation in just the default dredge archetype. There's probably some reanimator targets that we're missing out on that get you a few points here or there and, and things like that. And I think it's been a while since anyone really focused in on the deck. But it was also one of my favorites back in the day, too. Dragonlord Colagon, baby. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about all that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of good options out there. That's the problem with choosing your reanimator targets. And they're all kind of like good in their own spots, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're going down the Flamekin Zealot route or whatever, like Colagon is one that is a little bit more impactful on its own, but is pretty bad against like swords. So. Sure, sure, yeah, and you can make all these scenarios like which would oh, yeah. be best here and which would be best there, and that's one of actually the most difficult parts about constructing your legacy or excuse me your dredge deck for a legacy tournament is figuring out which targets you want, or a lot of times I've seen it be correct to play no targets. You just want to be like you know, a value dread return deck. And I've also seen times where people aren't even playing dread return. So dread strategies can be all over the place. And I kind of miss when dredge innovation was the big talking point in the legacy community. Cause it feels like that's fallen to the back burner a little bit these days. And I get why you're exactly right. It hasn't gotten anything in a long time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I was always partial to the dredge decks that 
basically didn't have like maybe you have one value dread return to kind of like speed you up and give you a bunch of zombies but you weren't like trying to flame Godzilla people because if you therapy someone four times like they're probably going to lose yeah that's good enough in most cases and I, I tended to trend that way as well where all the flashy stuff felt like win mores but in post board games it could be really impactful you know stuff like Iona and the burn matchup and silly stuff like that where you just get the auto wins by having the card in somewhere in your deck always was a fan of exploring those options in post board games Yep, for sure. Uh, so Delver is dope. How was your one stifle? Uh, it was huge. Quite a few times, actually. I, I was pleased with the one stifle. It's You know, it's hard to analyze because it's like, were there times where it would have been better? I think the default card that most people would play in that slot is a forked bolt. I never really felt like I was missing out by not having a forked bolt and the blowouts I got from having the stifle were noticeable. But, you know, it could be me being a little revisionist and wanting my pet choice to be good, but it did feel really good. You know, a, a lot of these Delver mirrors come down to just like one player gets to play the game. The other player doesn't. And right. stifles just a little push in the direction of you being the player who gets to play the game. So I could see if the meta gets a little bit more inbred and the Delver decks really start targeting each other. Uh, the stifle way of doing things might pick up a little bit and might see a few more stifles creeping their way into deck lists. Yeah, it's legit. Uh, if I were playing Legacy, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out a way to beat up on blue Deathrite decks. The card Counterspell, I still like, but if the Day 2 metagame at, like, GP Seattle or the Team Pro Tour or whatever is, like, as homogenized as you were talking about, then I I don't like the card Counterspell. You know, like, I definitely don't like it against Delver decks, but I like it kind of just against, like, all the random decks, you know? So, like, I think I'm just going to go down like the Punishing Fire deck fade and route and see how that goes. Yeah, Punishing Fire has always been my approach to when the meta gets a little too Delvery for my liking. Jund often excels. I, I know that's a deck a lot of people don't like. It's something I've worked on a bunch in the past, though. I think Jund decks tend to be a little misbuilt. I was a big proponent of playing Gamble, both in the main deck and in the sideboard of my Jund list. Had a lot of success across various opens and GPs with the gamble jun list so maybe it's time for that again it, it adds a lot of flexibility to the deck uh makes a lot of your unwinnable matchups much more reasonable so i, I would like to look into that again it, it's also one of my favorite decks to play too anytime i get to ch- cast chains of mephistopheles i feel really good <laughs> yeah i mean i'd rather be the one casting brainstorm but whatever i i get it it's a lot easier to get your turn one brainstorm and not ever have to worry about the chains of mephistopheles again but just something about casting that card really appeals to uh you know, me playing 20 years ago when I would look at that card and not even be able to ascertain what was going on on its face. So. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so other things of note that happened uh, last weekend was the Magic Online Championship Series finals held here in glorious Renton, Washington. So uh, I went there and hung out on Sunday because Emerald City Comic Con was also going on. So I was like at the con for most of the weekend, but yeah, caught the tail end of the mocks. Uh, saw Steve Rubin lose a heartbreaker in the finals. Jund against Bogles or Boggles, whatever. I don't know. I looked at the deck list, and the big thing that stood out to me was that, like, okay, well, some people identified that, like, there's going to be a lot of Jund, right? So it's like maybe you build a blue Jund deck, or maybe you do X, Y, and Z to your Jund deck. Some people were like, oh, well, I'll just play Bogles, right? And it's like, why did no one say, I'm going to play Tron? Because they done messed up, Jerry. That's the answer to that. Someone should have showed up with Tron and just crushed that entire field. They done goofed, man. I, I mean, you know my you know my feelings on Tron right now. I still believe it. It's probably the best thing to be doing in the format. 
Um, I would love to know the thinking behind the competitors not being willing to pick up the deck. I think it kind of gets a bad rap as, you know, being a deck that's kind of self-determinative where the outcome is decided more by the order of the cards that you draw than your influence on the game. I don't believe that to be true. And if you look at the success that some really good players have found with Tron in in recent times, um, be it Jim Davis or Seth Manfield, who I know are both proponents of the deck right now, it it definitely points to the opposite. I think Tron would have been an amazing choice for this tournament. Remains amazing choice for the, the format going forward. Uh, if I was playing GP Phoenix coming up, certainly would be playing Tron, 100%. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what I'm going to play in Phoenix yet, uh, but I hope that it does not end up being some mid-range deck that loses to Tron. I think that the competitors in this tournament played it a little safe, too. This was a tough tournament to prepare for. Preparing for a modern tournament is a, a tall task, and we're still just getting to unpack the unbans at this point. But the clearest thing from the unbans was that Bloodbraid Elf is very good and very easy to build around. And you see that's what a lot of the people participating in this tournament defaulted to. There is some out there stuff. Something like uh, Guillaume Matignon's deck was crazy. I, I have no opinion on that deck whatsoever. I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's bad. It just looks crazy on its face. I, know, I, actually, I actually talked to Guillaume a little bit about his deck. All right, so tell me. I, I want to know, what did he think? What was his thought process in building the deck? What's your opinion on the deck? So his rationale was that regardless of what happens or what had happened during the tournament, Sakura Tribelder is very good in a blue-white control shell. Like The deck is very, very mana-hungry. He said that his preparation went a little bit awry because the people who he played against in leagues playing Jund were not nearly as good as the Mox competitors playing Jund. So okay. he thought he thought he had an excellent Jund matchup where that ended up to not be the case. So he went uh, 5-1 limited and 4-4 and constructed and ended up, you know, fifth or something. So uh, X and 5 record is very, very good. But, you know, when you go 5-1 in draft, you, you, you're hoping for a little bit more on your constructed deck. Right, right. And it sounds like he didn't quite get there. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if the, and we probably should clarify, he played a, a kind of bantish control deck with copies of Time Warp in it, which certainly caught my eye. But it'll be interesting to see if it becomes a player going forward. Certainly trying new things with Jace, exploring cards that everyone has kind of cast off to the fringes of the format. So I'm all about that. And I think Guillaume is both a great magic player and a a great deck builder. So I'm always interested to see what he brings to the table. Uh, I think he kind of approaches the game very differently from a lot of other players. And that's always... uh, that's always an opportunity ripe for learning. You, you look at how he brings a deck to uh, a tournament like the Mox and, and he reaches these conclusions completely different from everyone else. I definitely want to unpack his process a little bit and understand how he got there. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, he, he played things like one copy of Emrakul the Promised End, right? And it's like, oh, like, is is that actually good? Time Walk or Time Warp with Jace is like another approach to making Jace great in modern that we haven't really seen outside of like the dedicated time walk decks. Right. So it's, yeah, it is. I agree. It's just incredibly interesting. And he said, you know, maybe his deck needed more help against John, but like Sakura Tribelder in blue, white actually gets the thumbs up from him. So. Well, good takeaway going forward and definitely some uh, fruitful, fruitful avenues for brewers out there to explore. Yeah. A little bit of on the scenes reporting too. Yeah. Very nice. Get that inside scoop. Oh yeah. Uh, So Slippery Boggle won the tournament. Again. Yeah. I've I've already heard like a lot of people just like, oh, like this is a thing now. I need to play back to nature's, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's the case, man. I don't think it's gonna catch on. 
you don't have to go that far. There, there's broader answers that decks can readily play. Engineered Explosives comes to mind as a very effective card against Bogles for the most part, uh, and and most decks can profitably play that. But you're probably exactly right that it, it's not about to become a particularly large portion of the metagame. It, it always will remain kind of uh, a spot call. If you make the call in the right instance, you'll be rewarded. If you ever get to the point where anyone's actually you know giving your deck a moment's thought and is willing to dedicate a sideboard slaughter to your matchup is going to become way worse all across the board. And you still get beat up by Tron, by the way. So let's just yes. keep that in mind. Yes, that's the thing. Okay, so if everyone's playing Jund and you're like, oh man, I really want to beat Jund, I guess I'll play Boggles. No, you should just play Tron because not only does it like legitimately beat up Jund, like I think that Bloodbraid Elf gives them a little bit of a clock and like more ways to spike Fulminator Mage or whatever. And maybe gives them like five percentage points in the matchup or whatever. I don't think it's a, that big of a deal though. And Tron against Jund was always just like a complete route. Whereas I think Boggles against Jund is close-ish. You know, maybe it's like 70-30 in Boggles' favor or whatever. And if you yeah, if you play Tron, like you also just get the buy against the Boggles people. So yeah. what the hell? Yeah. I'm with you entirely. You know, I do think that if if Jund focuses on Tron, they can make their matchup palatable. I, I think they could probably get to 45% pretty easily um, with dedicated sideboard slots for Tron. But that's a huge ask into the modern metagame to, to really have focused hate like that. Things like Crumble the Dust or you know other really staunch anti-Tron cards. If they start eating your sideboard slots, you're going to give up percentage points elsewhere. So I don't know if things have gotten to the point where they're making those kind of concessions. I mean, certainly... At this tournament, you would have been foolish to do so. So I don't know what's going to happen at the next GP, but I'm still predicting good things for Tron. I mean, maybe Black Green is good. Like, you get the four Field of Ruins main deck. You can sideboard Fulminators and Surgical Extractions. And I, I think that's I think that's the best way to get percentage points against Tron. Give up the red, which, I mean, who's actually going to do that in a world where we just got back our Bloodbraid Elves? Probably nobody at this point. Watch Chion against Reed Duke. Watch him just dismantle him with Black Green and Tireless Tracker. Tireless Tracker wins. Okay, so maybe we're looking at the next evolution already. I, I don't know. I think people are going, even if it's correct, people are going to hesitate to step away from the Bloodbraid Elf right now, at least for a couple more tournaments before this really gets sussed out and proven. Um, obviously, if someone is brave enough to show up with Black Green and pilot it to the top eight of the next big GP, then everything changes and, and we're back to square one as far as analyzing things. But I don't know how many people are willing to take that leap right now. Well, what about playing Black Green and trying to get some Bloodbraids in there? By some, I mean four, obviously. Okay, so yeah, just a, just a splash for the Bloodbraid Elves. Maybe that's that's palatable. You could certainly fit your Field of Ruins. You know, we've seen three-color decks um, with far greedier mana requirements run uh, Field of Ruins to success. I think back to Corey Burkhart's deck from the Pro Tour, which had a very good record. Grixis Control with three Field of Ruins when he had Cryptic Command in his deck and uh, kind of shows you it's possible if you're willing to go that far. Um, and you know, the mana requirements in this black green splash red deck we're talking about are going to be far less demanding than a cryptic command deck. So I think you can make it work if you really wanted to and kind of into this idea. I want to explore it a little bit. It sounds good. Yeah. I'm kind of piecing out a list right now, but we'll see. Cause I'm like, obviously once you have Bloodbraid elf, you really want lightning bolt. You want the things to actually capitalize on the chip damage. Uh, so then, you know, you're, you're going down the, K command route and everything, and it, it gets messy. You start ended up 
looking like Jun with you know, 20, 27 land with four field of ruins or whatever. And I don't think that's exactly where you want to be. Yeah, and an abrupt decay and fatal push look way worse when you're blood braid elfing. So you maybe you have to retool absolutely everything, and now you're playing collective brutality main as opposed to abrupt decay. I, I mean, I don't know. I think it asks you to make a lot of changes and a lot of concessions if you're going to go down that route, but maybe successfully so. Certainly something worth exploring. I'm fine with bolt brutality, Kate Command Liliana. Like maybe you just end up being too weak to Tarmogoyf and Death Shadow and the like, but I don't know. Be interesting. Yeah, still a lot to discover in this format. Still an exciting uh, exciting world in, in modern land. I, I'm interested to see what the results of this next GP coming up. GP Phoenix, are you going to be attending GP Phoenix? Hell yeah. Oh, I wish I could make it. I'm, I'm totally into modern right now. I've become a complete modern guy. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, I won't be making GP Phoenix. But I will be closely following uh, to see what develops. Cool, cool. I did find some Grave Titan reanimator decks, by the way, but they're not the ones I was looking for. Okay. We're just going to cross our fingers that the person I'm talking about is, is a listener and, and yeah. we'll get the full scoop. Got some some Lake of the Deads, some sideboard pack rats. Pack rat. Wow. Wow. These people are crazy. They've really gone off the rails with this one. What? You want to you wanna hit my graveyard? Who cares? Pack rat. Yeah. That, they just completely ignore that you're, you're playing against them and... Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe this is the next big thing in Legacy. That's what's exciting about Legacies. You never know what the next breakout deck is, right? It could just come from completely left field. Lake of the Dead, make two pack rats. It's been a long time since I got to put a Lake of the Dead into play, and I, I kind of want to go back to that. See how much they are. $35. Good God. What? I wouldn't have guessed that in a million years. I just bought some for like $10 when I was picking up reanimator I, stuff. So I probably have a say? stack. I, I bet I have a stack somewhere that I opened in actual alliances packs, you know, going back 20 some years ago. Uh, they're probably in a box somewhere in my house. I'll have to go looking for them. Oh, no. Apparently they're always like 20 bucks. Really? They kind of spiked on January 22nd. It's just one of those cards you lose track of, right? Like when was the last time you thought, huh, I wonder what Lake of the Dead is worth? <laughs> like, it just hasn't been something in my, uh, you know, in my mental scape anytime oh, recently. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, they were like 12 bucks in August. And then August 22nd, they spiked to 32. And then it's been kind of just like up and down since then. That must be when the shady organized cabals work together to uh, buy all of the Lake of the Deads in the world. Yeah, likely. I didn't get mine though. Yeah, I got them. I got them before. I think I have like two or something, but whatever. Get paid. Get paid. I'm getting rich over here with my Lake of the Dead. Just buying terrible magic cards and watching them explode for no reason. <laughs> it's been a winning strategy over the past few years, so good for you. All right, so we covered some uh, Eternal and Fake Eternal formats, Modern Legacy, onto Standard, I suppose. Yeah, let's talk a little Standard. All right, so recording this on a Tuesday, March the 6th, Yesterday was March the 5th, and that means that I streamed. Yeah, you came through. I was a little worried. You know, the day was getting long, and it was coming to the evening time, and still no stream from Jerry, and I thought maybe you're going to have a, a horde of angry game listeners with, you know, pitchforks and torches outside your apartment, but you came through, and you got the stream going. Ooh, I'm in a house now, buddy. <laughs> so they can't get in? Do you have a moat by any chance? No, I don't. I don't have a moat surrounding the house, but yeah. Uh, standard is rad. There was a Magic Online Championship Series, not to be confused with the Magic Online Championship Series Finals. One of these mocks tournaments was uh, eight rounds of Swiss, 6-2 record or better gets you a qualification into the monthly thing or whatever. 
and you know maybe some other loot. I don't really know, but uh, standard mocks happened this weekend. Uh, Josh Cho was all set to play because he's been playing a bunch of standard and he overslept. Classic Cho. Forgot to set an alarm or something. Or no, his phone died. He was like watching something, fell asleep, and it just killed his battery. <laughs> that's a that's a new one for me. I don't think I've ever heard the I I watched myself out of contention, but that seems to be what happened here. Yeah, Cho obviously would have won with Red Black Aggro had he not overslept. Instead, we got Du Bois in first place, eight zero after the Swiss with yeah, you guessed it, blue white God Pharaoh's gift. You all knew it was coming. Where where did this come from? <laughs> this deck has just been like a non-entity. There's there's nothing flashy about this deck list. This is your classic blue white refurbished God Pharaoh's list list. I don't I don't see anything really new going on here, but here we are. 8-0 dominates the mocks. Yeah, this deck is hot medium. That's how I've always felt about it. And nothing's changed, right? It's it's still the same thing going on. This could actually just be Reed Duke's list from the World Magic Cup, you know? <laughs> card for card. Like, basically nothing has changed. Nothing is different. I mean, uh, I don't know. Like, if you look at trends over the last couple weeks, you do see red decks moving, like, more and more away from a braid. They're just like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sideboard these things now, which kind of makes sense. But there are still Aether Sphere Harvesters everywhere, you know? So it's, it's kind of sketchy to me. Maybe there is a, a time for this deck to actually make a comeback or whatever, but I'm skeptical. That's kind of the same narrative I would push if you were asking me to tell you why this deck was able to find success. It's that abrades are kind of at their low point for the last, I don't know, how, however long it's been since abrade has come out, probably. I, I think they are at a historical low given the rise of blue-black control, um, some other non-red decks getting a piece of the format. You know, it's not quite the all mono red team or metagame that this deck was facing down before. So you can make an argument that that is a huge push towards moving back towards God Pharaoh's gift. But I've always felt that that's kind of just the beginning of God Pharaoh's gift problems and and not the end of them. There's other issues with this deck. You know, it, it's really hyper powerful plan sometimes just pales in comparison to the plan of like, your average Scarab God deck. Like Scarab God can just be better than God Pharaoh's Gift in some instances, which is troubling when they just get to play a regular game of Magic and get access to Scarab God on top of it. They don't have to build their whole deck around enabling their one powerful card. So this continues to not be the deck for me, but I will give props to Du Bois for making what seems to be a pretty solid metagame call for this tournament and finding success. Yeah, my, my issue with this deck is basically similar to yours where you're jumping through all these hoops to assemble this combo and then you assemble the combo. Maybe it sticks, maybe it doesn't because of a braid. And then it's just like, oh man, I, I hope this actually works out. Because like, at that point, you're still playing magic. Like you're doing busted stuff, right? But what they're doing might just be better than yours or they might just kill you, burn you out anyway. And then, yeah, post-board games, like, games are basically just a nightmare, and you have to go on, like, this fair plan that's just not even very good. Yeah, the fair plan is is very much lacking, and they don't have any kind of real transformational sideboard. They're just like, okay, I'll just be a worse version of the deck I was in game one. I don't know. I think this deck has has structural problems. I think it, you know, could see some innovation at some point to make it a player again, but just reverting back to this kind of default blue whitelist does not excite me whatsoever 
and I would be looking elsewhere for the the hottest tech. I don't think this deck is is, is just magically good again. That's not what's going on here. Just a, a good solid kind of outlier performance here. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, second place, we have Grixis Energy uh, with a Doomfall and a Commit, I guess. This is a member of the, the game Patreon uh, Discord. Uh, oh, no. VTCLA. Yeah. He's a frequent uh, talker, contributor in there. He said he was very pleased with his deck pleased with the outcome here. Uh, I, I know you bristle at the Doomfall. I do to some <laughs> extent as well. No, he said he, he, said he was going to write up like a Google Doc about his deck, right? I, I do remember yep. seeing that. Yes, he did. So, you know, just another perk of, of being in the game podcast Patreon Discord is our uh, listeners are also really, really smart and always contributing and sharing, as you can see by this result right here. Hell yeah. Yeah, so uh, I have... Grix is built. I want to play some. I definitely like the creature base. I mostly like the mana. I'm fine with like Owen's take that you can play 27 lands and get away with it. So I, I played Owen's list. I, I the, His list was the list that I was finding like, okay, it's time for me to play Grixis. I've, I've sat around trashing this deck basically since it's foray into the format. This is going to be the point where I pick up this deck and I kind of like expected to eat my words given how much he raved about the deck. And I just got absolutely thrashed. I flooded out and like half my game sat there with like 13 lands and four spells and cursing out Owen. So, you know, conceptually, I, I like a lot of what he was doing with his list. And, and I like the idea of just always hitting your land drops and letting yourself get to your powerful late game. I liked a lot of the way I saw his sideboard numbers working out. When I went to my sideboarding plans, things seemed really well thought out. And uh, I was making really smooth transitions, transitions from one plan to another. But maybe this just is is not the right deck for me. I, I don't know what to say. I continue to remain somewhat unimpressed by this deck on paper. And now that I've actually played with it, I can say that I was unimpressed with it when I played with it as well. Fair. Well, I'm going to try my list and see how that does. I'm pretty high on Essence Scatter right now. I'm not a big fan of like the clunky glimmers and supreme wills in the main deck. And I liked uh, Andrew Tenjum's main deck searches. Uh, I could get on board with that. Like we said it last week, I, I thought Tenjum's was the, the best built of the Grixis list I've seen. Or maybe that was two weeks ago now. But either either way, Tenjum's list uh, did look like a very well-built Grixis deck. Yeah, so Grixis keeps killing it. I got to see what all that is about. That was one of the decks that I did not end up streaming with. I hope you have better results than I did. That's all I'll say. Well, it can't get much worse. No, it can't. It cannot. So we'll see. Third place, also at 7-1, uh, John Rolf looking... Mono red aggro deck goes up to three glory bringers. PNLR main deck is a thing that becoming increasingly popular, both against like control decks and mirror matches, uh, the grasping dunes to take out the rekindling Phoenix, so on and so forth. Magma spray overshock also noteworthy. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Uh, sideboard, nothing too spicy except puncturing blow, I guess, but I don't know. Really, really wants to get rid of those scarab gods would be my guess. Oh, uh, well, Phoenix and Hazaret. No, not Hazret. Yeah. Yep, just Phoenix. Yep, just Phoenix and Scarab God. Okay. Yeah, if it's just Scarab God, I guess. I don't know. If you could board it in in mirrors, it'd be better. But eh. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see where he brought it in. Uh, I don't know if I'm willing to go down the, the four mana sorcery deal five route quite yet. Um, I think you'd rather just kind of play around Scarab God than ever acknowledge it as a card. Yeah, agreed. Next, we have Andrew with no E, and I believe this is... Uh, a Martin user account. 
Oh, sneaky user. He just picked up, this looks like a card for card copy of the uh, GP second place list. Yeah, Is that correct? Deck. So Hadana's Climb, Bristling Hydra. Bristling Hydra is still tight. Yeah, and we talked about this list uh, the last time we saw it. This is the way to do blue, black, or excuse me, black green. Please don't play just black green. Make sure you have Hadana's Climb in your list as well. Well, Hadana's Climb is just one of the very best cards you could be playing in this sort of deck. So yeah, I definitely recommend that. Yep. Uh, Chaos 55, also 7-1, black, blue, mid-range. You probably know how we feel about that. When do we get to the decks that we like? Is that part coming up soon? Is that like in the loser's bracket where we see all the decks that we're big fans of? Depends. How do you feel about Champion of Dusk? Um, well, if you asked me just my general thoughts on the Vampire's archetype, I probably would be pretty low on it. But I actually think this is a, a really interesting take on the deck. In my experience playing against Vampires, I find that even when they build this kind of dominating board presence through multiple radiant destinies and uh you know call to the feast just producing huge tokens all over the place they still can sometimes kind of pale in comparison to what scarab god is able to do just it's it's another one of those things where even when you execute your powerful game plan it's invalidated by some of these quote-unquote fair decks that still have access to the scarab god end game Mm -hmm. but i think this deck does a nice job of mitigating that via the inclusion of champion of dusk uh they can get that point where they hit board stalemate and just completely blow up and draw you know seven fresh cards and take the game over that way so this was a good addition i like this deck getting a little bit bigger i think that's going to be its keys to success going forward and uh Champion of Dusk is a good adaptation here. Hell yeah. Uh, so that is Fulgens at 7-1. Oddly enough, uh, 25 land, only one copy of Legion's Landing. It seems like Legion's Landing would be quite good when you're trying to like ramp to champion and you know just you know, have an extra land in general for when you're like re- refueling on cards, you know? Right. That was a striking number to me. I was really surprised to see only one copy of Legion's Landing. Um, would love to know his thoughts going forward. I mean, I guess he's just like, I can't afford to just play this derpy 1-1 but that doesn't really make any sense where he's willing to do vicious conquistador type things. So, well, he has two unclaimed territories, so that or four unclaimed territories, so that might be it. Uh, uh, two forsaken sanctuary, four unclaimed territory. So, I don't know. I think I would still, I would rather just like retool the mana base. And- right. If that's the case, he's the, he's the only person I've seen playing that gambit that safely. You know, it seems like the vampires decks are generally willing to just be like okay, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And they still jam four Legion's Landing, four Unclaimed Territory, just because the power level of Legion's Landing is there. If that's his reasoning, at least it's a, a, a valid point, I still would lean towards just having the copy of Legion's Landing. You, you want one in every game. It's a key piece of your plan in a lot of matchups. So it's very difficult for me to see one is the correct number. Check out those profane processions in the sideboard, though, before we move on. Nice tech. Oh, dude, bro. Profane Procession is like one of the best cards in Vampires because like like you're talking about those situations where you're doing your thing, you have a giant board, but like it's still not enough to beat them. Like Profane Procession is going to beat them and maybe it's better than Champion of Dusk. I don't know. Maybe it's like you want to champion to get all the land drops and make sure that like you're able to go along with your opponent and then Procession will take over. Maybe it's like an if or thing, but I do think that Procession is very, very good in Vampires. Yep. I'm with you. Well, you think it's good in everything, so. That's true. So it makes it real easy for me to evaluate Profane Procession in all decks. I just go, yep, great card. Move on. Yeah. All right. So next deck, another Grixis at 7-1, Thought Riot, a.k.a. Eric Smith, SCG Invitational winner. 
Yep, still Grixis. <laughs> still not a lot to say here. I mean, it looks a lot like the other Grixis list. He's got the Sir Traz Kanta back in the mix. That's cool. Uh, you see Commit to Memory making a bigger uh, impact in the format. And he even has a consigned to Oblivion uh, floating around as well. So really wants to deal with those problematic permanents. A couple disallows now getting in the mix. So uh, it seems like these decks are kind of trending more towards the controlish side of things these days. Yeah, two champion of wits and 25 land also, which, I mean, I get that the champion helps you out and everything, but 25 land is so low. Not a lot of lands. Not a lot of lands. Greedy. Greedy. Uh, then we get into six twos. Uh, mono red, blue black control with metallurgic summonings over the Scarab God. Uh, strong dislike for that. Sorry. I mean, props for innovation and doing something different, but there's a reason we talk about the Scarab God week in and week out. I yep. mean, this might be a budget consideration. Quite possibly. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Scarab Gods are expensive, man. They're like 35 bucks. Yeah, they are expensive. All right. Uh, next, we have Brad Nelson with Black Blue Midrange, another mono red deck. Teamer that has Channeler Initiate as additional ramp, the pretty normal uh, Rekindling Phoenix stuff. Also, Scarab God, Carnage Tyrant, Confiscation Coup. Wow, this deck goes big. It goes big fast, too. A lot of, a lot of little ramp guys floating around. Interesting take. I haven't really seen anything like this before. Carnage Tyrant main deck is legit. It's a good time for Carnage Tyrant. Um, with, with his mana abilities, having the three channel initiate as well as the four servant, I, I would not be opposed to him going up to four copies in post-board games. I think he could just lean on that card super hard against a lot of the format right now. And that's been one of my biggest takeaway in, in, in playing games with uh, Black Green Ramp is that card just beats like half the format on its own one copy of it on its face if you have it you win the game um cool. so i i would lean even harder on the carnage tyrants in this type of type of deck once you've made the commitment to that, having those kind of mana dorks floating around word yeah we'll talk about ramp in a second here uh tomb simon aka simon nielsen black midrange andy gray aka andrew beckstrom with sam black's white xx token deck uh, Ulrich Zero Zero, aka Greg Kowalski, with Naya Monsters. Dude, your knowledge of moto names is bordering on frightening. Just so we're being clear. Coffee House Ryan, aka probably a dude named Ryan. <laughs> Nailed it. Green White Aggro, love it. Uh, and then yeah, Grixis Control. Uh, Elias, aka Elias Wattsfeld, with Blue Black Control. Citrus, not to be confused with Citrus D, who is Tom Ross, also blue-black control. Then Grixis, uh, Ruiner, I also know, with the SRAM deck. Thalai, who I think is Javier Dominguez with the Sultai deck. Blue-black midrange, blue-black midrange, vampires. Defi 0 who is Aaron Barrage, playing Aaron Barrage's deck. Yeah, and then we're into the 5-3s. So Standard looks a lot different, man. Like There's a lot of, a lot of Drown Catacombs out there. A decent amount of Hadana's Climbs, some Profane Processions, Vampires might be making a resurgence, you know? Yeah, I could see, uh, you know, just white X decks in general, um, white go wide decks as we classify them, starting to get their presence felt because the format is moving very hard towards these blue-black control decks, which are still primarily based on one-for-one one removal. I think it may be time for these decks to start upping their Golden Demise count. You know, maybe dabbling even in the other cards that I don't like so much, Yehenny's Expertise and Bantu's Last Reckoning, but certainly pushing the Golden Demise count ever higher. Well, here's the thing. 
couple weeks ago, I wrote this article about Adano's Vanguard in Standard, and I was pretty high on him. Uh, three decks in the article that I liked, uh, some more than others, you know, but among them was the Blue-White Ceram deck. That weekend at GP Memphis, Blue-Black popped up, and they had a bunch of Moment of Cravings, and it's like, oh, like maybe I don't like these decks as much anymore because Adano Vanguard is like one of the big draws to them, right? But right. after changing some sideboard cards, it's like, oh, yeah, like Blue-Black's not that bad. Like you resolve like one SRAM's expertise, you're able to like counter their Torrential Gearhawk with Jason's Defeat or get it out of the way with the cast out. And it's like, they're going to die to your tokens eventually because they are not playing enough sweepers. And I don't know why, because even things like Golden Demise are just like pretty reasonable against the model red decks and like the vampires and stuff like that. But like, just no respect, man. Right. Sweepers as a, as a card type are dramatically underplayed in standard right now, partially because they're a little weaker than they've been in the past. And we're kind of like, having some price memory where we don't want to pay, you know, three mana for these kind of suboptimal sweepers. <laughs> so we're asking for more and it's just not there. But yeah, I, I think that Golden Demise is, is the big one that I want to see a lot more of. But all the other ones too, it's just like the time is right. We, we need to start packing these kind of answers. Um, you know, Sweltering Suns is a card which is dramatically underplayed as well. I wonder if at some point it's going to be correct for the Grixis deck to explore that card. Uh, it does seem like they'd probably go Golden Demise before they go Sweltering Suns, but maybe not. You could think of some context. If the Vampire's deck catches on where they have access to something like Radiant Destiny to grow their tokens out of range of Golden Demise too quickly for you to deal with them, then something like Sweltering Suns becomes appealing. So I could see that happening for sure. Yeah, definitely. It, do, that, it does make sense. I'm looking on Goldfish as I do, and I tried, you know, I was like, oh, Black-Blue mid-range is like, the the most popular winning deck, right? Second is Blue Black Control. So again, a lot of Drowned Catacombs. Third is Grixis Energy. And then I'm like, well, Mono Red is fourth, but what happens if we combine like all the red decks? Well, then red overtakes Blue Black Midrange. And then you're like, well, yeah, but like Blue Black Midrange and Grixis Energy are both just like Glintsleaf Siphoner decks, right? And it's like, Correct. okay, yeah, you got me. So then I started going down this rabbit hole of like, trying to tally up the macro archetypes because standard is in this weird spot where there's just a lot of one-off decks, you know? And after tallying it up, it looks like white go wide is actually the most popular macro archetype. Yeah. When you told me that, I have to admit I was blown away because that is not, when I'm thinking of the format holistically, that is not the way I perceived it until we had this conversation. I, I think kind of, Mono Red and Red X Aggro are your first enemies. But data points to the fact that it may be true that actually White Go Wide is now your biggest enemy once you combine everything together. And that's just crazy. I mean, talk about hard evidence that you should have more sweepers in your deck. It really doesn't get any harder than identifying White Go Wide as the most played deck. And then still, those sweepers being mostly fine against the red aggro deck, so long as you're not getting into red green monsters type territory where they become much more ineffective. But as long as they're low to the ground, you know, black red aggro or just mono red aggro, then the sweepers are still very effective cards. Yeah. And it is worth noting certainly that the mono red decks will generally take out some of their smaller low impact right. creatures post board for some more high impact threats. So you're never almost never going to catch them with like a four for one or a three for one, but with a lot of the red decks turning to Pia Nolar, like you kind of need a sweeper to actually deal with that, you know, to like catch Pia and a Bomat Curry or something. Like the Golden Demises aren't going to be like full on blowouts, but they are going to give you that breathing room that you need. 
Right. Just just because they're only two for ones doesn't make them any less essential to your game plan and any less essential to surviving to the point where you can start taking over with your Scarab Gods. Yeah, so it looks like the white go wide decks are like 30 copies. Uh, Red X aggro is 28-ish. I have to redo these numbers a little bit because some of it's kind of weird looking at it. I was like, you know, what do we... What do you classify red-green aggro as? Because they're coming at you basically the same way as a lot of the red aggro decks are, where you have to beat Rekindling Phoenix, you know? Like, you need very specific ways to either interact with that or go around it or not care about it, you know? Uh, So I kind of wanted to classify them the same way. You did not, and that kind of makes sense. That got me thinking that, like, maybe the decks that are Phoenix and Glorybringer and not Hazoret, it should be, like, categorized Hazoret or no. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a little cleaner and gets a little bit more to, to what you're actually concerned about. But then you countered with the point that it's kind of like unkillable threat aggro. That's what we're actually talking about, right? right. It's like be it Rekindling Phoenix or Hazaret, basically these really sticky threats, which demand something like Vraska's Contempt are, are the wrinkle. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of hard to throw these decks into macro archetypes right now. I would split up the red green decks versus something like mono red or red black. But I do understand the point that there's a lot of similar cards, which are, are good against both archetypes. Uh, a lot of overlap in your response plan, even if their active plan isn't the same. Yeah. So then, I mean, I think I could split them in like little ish red and big ish red, and that would mm-hmm. be uh, a pretty reasonable way to look at it. Uh, it's like, you know, how many fanatical firebrands are you going to be, getting attacked by versus like land go into glory bringer. Right. Uh, mm. So then it's like, okay, well maybe if I do want to combine them, a good way of looking at it would be like the pillars of the format. And I generally like doing this where it just kind of gives you this holistic view of the format where if you are not playing one of these cards, you need a very good reason. And I believe that the pillars are hour of promise, which covers the ramp decks Torrential Gear Hulk, which covers the blue control decks. Glensleeve Siphoner, which covers the black mid-range decks and like the black green aggro decks. Rekindling Phoenix, God Pharaoh's Gift, and Legion's Landing. And God Pharaoh's Gift is a very, very small one, I think. Yeah, I, I posited that maybe God Pharaoh's Gift was a, uh, what, what did I finally settle on? A pedestal of the format as opposed to a pillar because it didn't reach quite to the ceiling. Yep. Um, more, of a, more of a half pillar. But yeah, I, I like this method of, of classification. I think it's useful for kind of determining what kind of strategies you need to have plans for. If you wanted me to talk about one that kind of stands out as having the least overlap with how you approach it from all the other ones, it would be Green Ramp. I, th- I think Green Ramp is both underdeveloped and kind of under-targeted as it stands right now. It, it's the archetype, the macro archetype with the room, the most room for growth at this stage, I think. Absolutely. And this is this is one of the decks that I want to hammer down within the next couple of weeks just to do it, just as a thought experiment. But yeah, Hour of Promise could certainly be classified under like some sort of Raska's Contempt like Black Midrange in the same way that Siphoner is. People are, people are going to say like, oh, the Scarab God should be on this list. But like the Scarab God is encompassed by Torrential Gearhog and Glensleaf Siphoner, but it's possible that Siphoner, Gearhog, and Our Promise should all be Vraska's Contempt, even though there is some amount of blue-white control out there. So then it becomes Vraska's Contempt, Rekindling Phoenix, and Legion's Landing. Yeah, I could see that way of looking at it as well. I'm, I'm not sure which is more helpful towards making like informed decisions about the format, but really that's that's up to you. You know, When you're looking at a format like this holistically, 
whichever way is best for you to kind of filter your perception of the format through, go with it, run with it. And as, as long as you're accounting for everything, I think any kind of classification works as long as you're using it to its fullest and it, it applies to the way you want to think about the metagame. Well, for me personally, if I'm building a deck and uh, I think of Legion's Landing, Vraska's Contempt, and Rekindling Phoenix, I'm going to want cards against all three of those archetypes, right? And I think right now a lot of people are just like, eh, Legion's Landing isn't a real thing, but you look at like the actual metagame data and that's just not true. So yeah. it is it is yeah. very much those things. It's like white go wide, black midrange, and like indestructible threat aggro, right? Those are the things that you need to prepare for. And once you figure out how to do that, you stop looking at the micro decisions and start focusing on the macro. And I think that'll save you a lot of sideboard slots. Right. And it's also really useful in something like the green black ramp decks where they, they're kind of exploring these mastermind acquisitions packages now. I know you weren't a big fan of that. H- having played the deck a little bit, I do think it's the right way to go. It just gives you an incredible amount of strategic flexibility. That's that's a fancy way of saying it's bad. <laughs> I mean, the, I, I understand listen, what you're saying. Listen, the the go list ahead. the list that I'm playing with uh, have acquisition, and I at points when I've been writing down lists, I've gone up to three acquisitions. Like what what I want to do and what is. Uh, strategically correct are probably not the same things, but it's like Mastermind's acquisition into like Zakama seems rad, right? But realistically, yes. if we're talking about like Carnage Tyrant is the thing that you should be doing, then it's just like play for Carnage Tyrants, have that be the way that you beat Red and beat Control, and then like just don't play these stupid tutors. I think that there could be some discipline with the acquisitions packages. They could be smaller. It could be a a one of possibly in the main deck where, because there's a lot of cards that just having one copy somewhere in your 75 and having access to it in pre-sideboarding games will make a tremendous difference in your overall win rate. Something like Carnage Tyrant. I get what you're saying there. You should just probably play some Carnage Tyrants. Okay, you can get me on board with that. But there's other random cards that if they if they weren't in my 75, there's been a lot of games I could never have hoped to win. Uh, one that comes to mind is Sandworm Convergence. If you were just asking me if I want a copy of Sandworm Convergence in my straight blue black deck and Mastermind's acquisition doesn't exist, I say absolutely not. Way too narrow. There's no way that's the card I want. But it's gotten me out of otherwise unwinnable situations. Now, obviously, there's always the counter argument. Well, if you just had real cards in your deck, you would have never gotten into that situation. Yep. You can always make that argument. Yep. And I get it. I get it entirely. But I, I do think that Masterminds Acquisition is a unique tool. This kind of wish, as we like to call them, you know, calling back to the living wish, cunning wish type cycle. It doesn't strike me as something we've had access to in a very long time. Um, and I, I, just, I think our one-ofs are so uniquely powerful right now. And the fact that you're really like, you have access to all five colors of mana. So if you identify a card which is getting you significant percentages in a certain matchup, you will pretty much always have access to that card. I don't know, man. It's it's funny that you bring that up as an upside, whereas I look at it like people are putting like Hour of Devastation and Nezahal in their sideboard, and it's like, what are you doing? Some of these cards are very silly, and I'm not going to deny that. Nezahal is like, dude, just play Carnage Tyrant. Right. You don't need to go down that route. Right. Yeah, that... There's a lot of very silly cards out there. I'm not saying there isn't, but I do believe that an optimized version of a green black ramp deck with, like I said, a smaller masterminds acquisition package can very much benefit from the inclusion of that card. That's my takeaway from having played some games, but you have to be conservative. You have to be conservative without a doubt. If you, if you muck your deck up with this nonsense, it it gets sloppy very quickly. 
I want to try no acquisitions, four tyrants, two profane processions, two arch. Those are my big changes. Tyrant's a little awkward in that your ramp spell brings you to seven or eight, and you're only asking for six. A um, little weird, but you know it's not like you're not playing gift. Then I tyrant and then activate my treasure map. Like, who cares, man? Yeah, as long as you've and got enough mana sinks, that's fine. Especially you're talking about playing a lot of copies of Profane Procession. You know I love that. So you're, you're going to find home for your mana elsewhere. And, and that's really the key thing is having enough to dump your mana into. So the big problem with these decks is you can tread water against the red aggro decks for a long enough time. They will eventually draw some big threat that you will not have an answer to. So you need something to actually lock the game up, uh, at least the way they're built currently. And Mastermind's Acquisition doesn't really find anything of that nature. So what you can do is build your deck in such a way that you can cast Zakama, which will effectively lock it up. It has it has reach and vigilance and gains you life. But then you run the risk of getting hit by things like Carrie Zev's expertise, but whatever. And Profane Procession seems like the one thing where it's like, oh, you know, maybe this gives me enough spot removal against their big stuff that uh, I can win the game with this. But I also think just like kill your thing, kill your thing, jam Carnage Tyrant. Like, that's a plan. How would you respond to the white go wide decks, which we've now identified as a, as a large portion of the format? Are you just talking like Golden Demise main deck or? Um... I mean, you could like, so for a deck that has a bunch of ETB tap lands, you're, you're not really casting Fatal Push very often on turn one. And Fatal Push is at its best, I think, when you have a good plan to, like, one-for-one one all of your opponent's stuff. But if the first time you cast Fatal Push is on, like, turn three after you play, like, a treasure map or something, then it might as well just be a Golden Demise. Because, like, Demise kills most of the same things that you would push. And Moment of Craving... It, like, if you're going to cast push on turn two, it might as well be moment of craving because right. then you're making up for the fact that you played an ETB tap land on turn one and couldn't push on turn one. So I think you can move away from pushes and go more down the route of golden demise. And then demise makes your doomfalls, like, actually reasonable. Okay. Uh, this sounds promising. Like I said, I think this is the archetype with the most room to explore. I'm very curious to see where people take it in the future. Um, if I can find any, any wiggle room that I want to explore, th there's a lot here and, and a lot to unpack. This is the hour of promise, baby. You know, it's promising. Yeah. I mean, look, hour of promise has been a card that has, uh, caught my attention from the moment I first saw it. I think I identified it as my number one card going all the way back to our, uh, that might've been one of our first shows together actually. Yeah, uh, probably. But I've always been high on Hour of Promise. It's a very unique card in the uh, history of magic. Being able to get two of any land is a unique effect. And it should have a home in the format, without a doubt. Yeah, and being a defensive ramp card is also bomb. Yeah. Uh, there, are, there are a ton of awesome utility lands right now. Yep. But yeah, maybe we should change the name of the podcast to Hour of Promise. I think that would be rad. No, I, I've already said, a lot, you know, this is a common question we get. Are you going to change the podcast? Ever since I started doing it, is it going to be called something different? And I always said it should be called The Bag Podcast, Brian and Jerry. And then we close every show with, it's in the bag. Oh, yeah. No, that is that is really good. That's good, right? It is good. So if we ever change, that's what we're changing to. I'm just putting it out there right now. All right. Well, we got to work on this deck. We got to fix it. Vampires is another thing that I want to work on a little bit. Uh, there have been like some more mid-rangey versions, some super low to the ground aggro versions, the champion of dusk one. I think the ones that just exploit like the grindiness of the go wide aspect is where I want to be. Right. Right. Do you see a home for Alanda in any of these deck lists? 
I have her in like some of the decks that I have saved on my Moto account, but like it's it's okay. You just you really need a sack outlet, I think. Right, and it being a Vraska's Contempt format has kind of dampened her impact quite a bit. Makes things a little awkward, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a card that I've certainly had my eye on from the beginning. It seems like it should be doing more, but if you kind of think about the format uh, holistically, as we've been doing through this last segment, you can certainly see why she hasn't found a home yet. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what else? There's some some weirdo ramp decks with dinosaurs. I'm not about it. Nope, dinos are a miss. Not coming back to them anytime soon. They're a trap. I mean, I could see ramping into Carnage Tyrant and Zakama and just being like Naya. Maybe that's a thing. Just giant dinosaur ramp? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you beat blue-black control in a million years. Well, you just lean on your Carnage Tyrants. Other than Tyrant, right? But like once they yeah. have like Vizier in their sideboard or Doomfall yeah. or whatever, yeah. like... It's going to be super tough, right? Yeah, I know when you were streaming yesterday, you've you've adapted Viziers into your blue black list and did a very good job of making Carnage Tyrant look much sillier than it has in the past. Oh against blue yeah, black. dude, it was a joke. It was awesome. Yeah. I'm like, oh, thank you for this giant beater, and then they're like, oh man, my thing is so good that I don't want to trade it with your Carnage Tyrant. So I, then I had like a Gaunti on defense or whatever. So they just like no attack, no blocked with the Carnage Tyrant for like three turns. It was great. Yep, easy game. Easy game, easy life. Monument is a miss for me. I think this is just a worse vampires. So yeah, I'm with you. Not going to get there. Uh, white green aggro decks are interesting. I started playing Snubhorn Sentry in these go wide decks in this Rams expertise decks, and I've been liking it. Okay, neat little adaptation there. And also tried that in the SRAM deck. And I think my my record with the SRAM deck would have been good if I had brain cells, but I played really bad. So magic's hard. I certainly never play well, so I, I'm not going to fault you for doing poorly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, there was there was a turn where I could I attack my opponent with a slippery scoundrel with curious obsession to draw a card, and then my opponent just ulted their Liliana and killed all of my non-zombie creatures, which was all of them. Yikes! That's a, that's an effective plan. But hey, I got a card off it, right? So. <laughs> that's all that matters. What else, man? What else are you interested in? Like, I definitely want to try Grixis uh, just because I want to see what the hype is. You know, like I played it before. I wasn't impressed. The lists are a little bit different now. So I'm intrigued. I, I want to hear your takeaway because I, I just I honestly feel like I'm missing something. Like so many people rave about these Grixis decks, how much they love this deck. And it, this should be exactly the style of deck I want to play. But it looks bad to me on paper and it felt bad when I played it. So <laughs> I, I'm kind of off the Grixis train. You know, I, I need someone to be really excited about a particular list. And Owen did it for me. He finally got my attention uh, to the extent where I'm like, okay, I just have to play a league with this deck. And I was let down. So I'm, I'm waiting for the next innovation before I hop back in with Grixis. Um, as far as unexplored base, I, I think I made pretty clear. I, I, th- I think Black Green has the most room for success. It's still the furthest away from being optimal. Um, so I, I'd really like to invest some more time there and, and figure out how to build the best version of the Hour of Promise decks. Word. Uh, it's also worth noting that when I was streaming last night, I played against very few red aggro decks, and it was a lot of blue-black, you know, just like grixis type things. So yeah, the, the format has definitely shifted. It is it is more of a mid-range and control format now, at least online. So maybe it makes the ramp deck better? I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I, I think that matchups felt pretty good to me uh, on the ramp side versus control. I, I think they do have some game. 
And and I think also the way you're seeing the format move, it's kind of just the natural conclusion once you identify the blue-black deck having success against the red deck. Like I said, that was kind of the breakthrough. When I hit that moment of, oh, actually, blue-black is just favored against red now, everything kind of changed, and the format shifted on its head for me. Um, and you're, you're seeing the ripples of that still going through stuff like this Mox and, and the Qs right now. You're exactly right that red is uh, kind of at a, a low point for, you know... It, since the printing of, of Ramanap Ruins, this is probably the least red that's been in the queues. Yeah, that's that seems legit to me. So, yeah, maybe that's why the God Pharaoh decks are like, well, why that person went 8-0, right? It's like there's not a lot of Deadeye Trackers or Graveyard Hate or anything, and there's a lot of Drowned Catacombs, which is actually pretty weak to God Pharaoh's Gift. I guess there's Commit Memory, which is popping up a lot. Right. I, I don't think that's the most effective piece of hate against the, the God Pharaoh's gift decks, but it's, it's something. I, I still keep saying there's going to be a time when Crook of Condemnation is correct. I'm sorry. Nobody wants to play that card. I don't want to play that card. There's going to be a time where that card should be played. If only Silent Gravestone were good against God Pharaoh's gift. Yeah, it just doesn't get the job done. Yeah, I wish. It's a much cleaner card to play. Oh, yeah. No, an answer Scarab God, too. It's great. Yep. Yep. Uh, so past that, yeah, like the the white go wide decks, these black ramp decks. Did you catch me streaming blue black control at all? Yes, that's that's what I caught mostly. Um, and and you were forgoing the draw twos. Interesting take on the archetype. Yeah, I have no idea if that's right or not, but I played two main deck blood fast, and they were pretty tight. Yeah, they, I saw them do work for you. Look, I think historically, four mana draw twos would not be identified as particularly good, right? This is kind of something we would pass on in a lot of contexts. Yeah, in- inspiration is is not standard playable, you know? Right, that's that's always been the case, and we've kind of all defaulted to it being correct. You know, kudos to you for challenging assumptions. I don't know if you're right. I don't think you conclusively proved anything in, in your games. Um, I went but... four and one, man. I'm, I'm pretty sure I proved it. All right, fine. Those cards are <laughs> unplayable now. It's a, it's a done deal. You can't argue with, uh, can't argue with results. I think I would like to have maybe like two illuminations in my deck and I did play two sensors. So I think I could pretty easily make that swap because I don't think I ever cast sensor. Okay. So maybe you went a little bit too far. Maybe, maybe I also just stole the idea from a Japanese player. So, well, that's where all the best ideas come from. Everyone knows that we're here just basically, um, you know, cribbing all the, what the Japanese players do. Oh yeah. Most of the time. So yeah, I'll, I'll make that change. Uh, my sideboard had contraband kingpins, which were pretty loose. But maybe necessary. I'm not really sure. It's hard to say. As as mono red trends down, obviously they get less and less necessary. Yeah, and especially the more like big red type decks pop up, like the more ineffectual that gets as a sideboard card. Although Kingpin is pretty good against Ram's expertise and the like. So yeah, yeah, the white go wide. It does a nice job blocking there. I also saw it doing some some hefty beatdowns against the uh, the black green ramp deck last night. Well, so. it, it was actually cool because. You know, it's it's a combo with Bloodfast, right? Right. Most powerful combo in standard. It's not the most embarrassing thing. It was like that or a moment of craving or like a demise. And people were like, oh, well, if you have golden demise, you can get your gear hulk past their carnage tyrants or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that's right. But I guess I'll play this kingpin. And then it, it got me to like 24 and I got to draw a couple extra cards off it. So, yeah, whatever. Good enough. Good. Good enough. Good job, little guy. Yeah, uh, that's it. If there were a tournament this week. Uh, I might play, might play blue, black control. 
That was going to be my answer as well. I kind of want to say something off the wall, but I I just don't think I believe in anything. Vampires is the other one that I would at least consider. It seems like I have a feeling that if I'm perceiving the metagame to have not as much white X aggro as it actually does, other people might be making that same mistake and might be underprepared for something like a well-built vampires list this week. So, Yeah, I guess the more black-blue mid-range pops up, over blue black control, the fewer moment of cravings there are. And Adano's Vanguard is just really good against like Grixis and those decks. So Yep. Yes, it is. I could I could I could see beatdown ish white go wide that also has like a late game. So I'm more interested in vampires than something like SRAM. Maybe we should do that. We should work on we should create a stack rank. We should work on vampires and then ramp. And then maybe go about like tuning the existing decks, but like definitely those two in that order. Yeah, a lot, uh, again, it's, it's worth our time to identify what has the most room for growth. And that's what I would peg is the most room for growth right now. The least developed of the archetypes. Yeah, and Vampires is winning in all these different iterations. So, Right, they tend to look very different. I, I don't know if that's just like there's multiple good Vampire decks or we're still congealing to the optimal one. I, it could be either or. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's game. No, no, no. <laughs> you don't get, get to do it like that. Question. Always a question. I'm never letting you off the hook. I, I have one that I like this week quite a bit from my friend John Capora, who wants to know when was the last time you left a tournament disappointed in your play and what did you do about it? Um, uh, Good. You want to take this first? You can take it first. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Every tournament ever. Yeah, that's my answer too. Damn it, I shouldn't have let you take it first. What I did about it was just try not to make the same mistakes again. Like, learn from it. Learn from it. Like, you shouldn't be disappointed. It is just a thing that has happened. It is in the past. It's over and done with. Regrets are very silly. The only thing that regret should do for you is teach you how to be better. The end. I think that's a great way of looking at things. Um, Like you said... I don't think I've ever left a tournament and been completely satisfied with my play. Um, are there levels of disappointment? Sure. Some tournaments I leave absolutely dejected. Like, why Why did I play so poorly? How could I not have prepared better than this? But on the whole, there's not a single tournament I can recall where I was like, wow, I really played perfectly this tournament. If you ever have thought that, you were wrong. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. There's varying levels of disappointment. When I have a particularly disappointing tournament, And I think this is where I am going to differ pretty strongly from you is that being someone who's not a professional magic player who, you know, kind of has another uh, career, I I try and put things in perspective. And that's kind of a cop out in a lot of ways and giving myself a pass for not succeeding. And I get that that's cheating a little bit, but at the same time, you have to be realistic. And, uh, you know, where you have a lot of other constraints in your life and a lot of other things taking up your time, I think you need to find satisfaction with the things you do accomplish. You know, so in that tournament that I'm super disappointed in, I'll try and look for a game I played particularly well. Or uh, I can say, well, look, at least I made the right metagame call. You know, I I analyzed the field properly and I had the right deck. I just didn't have it today for whatever reason. I want to give kind of a two-pronged answer. I always leave a tournament disappointed, but I don't think that's a bad thing. And I'd rather pull away from that disappointment and and give myself a little hint of positive, look at what I did well, and use the disappointment to kind of shape my thinking in the future. And just don't make the same mistakes again. If you make an obvious mistake, put something in your process that'll prevent you from making that mistake in the future. And that's the best thing you can do. 
Yeah, I like that. I like that answer a lot. I I definitely like the the flip side of it where it's like, I mean, especially once you get to the point where we are, where we're just like, yeah, we're basically always going to play bad, right? So look at a thing that you did particularly well and try to use that as a thing to feel good about, you know? Because right. you're like, oh, you know, I have this this other career in my real life, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, well, for a lot of people, like magic's an escape and like maybe things are going poorly in their life, right? Right. So it's it's like if magic also goes poorly, that can be really, really hard on someone. But yeah, if there's like a thing in magic that you can point out where it's like, oh man, like I played a good deck, like I didn't play it well or I didn't sideboard well or I didn't have the right list or whatever, but like, you know, I'm close. Like I made I made some pretty good decisions along the way and like that's a good thing to fall back on. Right. And also something that's changed for me a lot uh, recently is just appreciating the time at a magic tournament. Like you have to remember you're doing the thing you love. Like this is what you're, at least for a lot of us, um, certainly for me, certainly for you and and for a lot of our listeners, this is kind of like your passion. Um, This is your thing. This is what you get excited for. And losing sight of that at a tournament is, it's it's somewhat silly. I've done it. You know, I I spent the vast majority of my time involved with magic doing it and being like why am i at this tournament being kind of mopey about it and cranky when things didn't go well it's just not worth it like this is what i like to do i'm happy i got the opportunity to play magic even if things went poorly and I, i'd rather take away the positives i guess yeah man. Uh, it took me a long time to learn that lesson for sure a really long time and i don't fault anyone you know for having a hard time reaching that point because it, it really is a journey but it's something to strive for for sure yeah absolutely that's also very legit Okay, now I, I think we have fulfilled our obligations to our Patreon supporters, our fantastic Patreon supporters who help us do this podcast every week. We have taken our question. I'm going to go answer the rest of the questions that were proposed in the Discord. I do that every week too for people who aren't over in the Discord. Uh, even the the questions we don't get to answer here, I do take the time to answer them over in the Discord. So Because you're gas. I try. I try and be gas. So if you're a Patreon member, make sure you're popping in to check that out as well. That's game. Now it's game. It's in the bag! Good luck.